Okay, everyone, let's let's um let's go ahead and get started. I, I just thought it was very very encouraging to see brothers and sisters come up forward and encourage Brother Chris. He's a good man, and um, I really appreciate the loving people here at this church. This is the most loving church I've ever been part of, and um, that just shows a lot of God is in you, a lot of Jesus is in you. So so God bless you. Um, turn your Bible, please, to Revelation chapter 6 this morning. Revelation 6. Uh, we're going to be a lot in Revelation 7 if we have a, a, some, enough time, but I do want to say a few things more about Revelation 6. It's good to see you again this morning. Great to have guests here with us. We're going to dive into our Bible study from the book of Revelation. We're making our way through Revelation. Before we do that, let's have a, a word of prayer, please. Let us pray. Holy Father, thank you so much for a beautiful day here in Phoenix, Arizona. Thank you, Father, for loving us and taking care of us and providing for us in so many ways. We're so thankful for the avenue of prayer and the forgiveness that comes from you because of your wonderful and amazing grace. Father, we pray that you will be with us during this time of Bible study, be with all our teachers, and bless them to efficiently and effectively present their material this morning. We pray that in all things you'll be glorified through this study from the scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, I want to do two things in this Bible class. First, I want to just say a few more things about the sixth seal, the sixth seal that was broken and opened by Jesus in Revelation 6. And then secondly, I want to deal with just a, a few of the first Verses found in Revelation 7. Now, remember where we are right now. We are right here, chapter 6. Chapter 6, we're looking at the breaking of the first six seals. Remember the first seal, the white horse, the white horse that came forth conquering. That, at least in my view, in my study, represented the conquering of the gospel. The gospel going out into the world and people being converted to Jesus. The story of Revelation really kicks off there. The second horse, the red, the red horse with the rider who's taking peace from the earth and causing all kind of chaos and murder. We say that represents the conflict that followed the gospel. Remember, Revelation was written to Christians who were being persecuted in the first century. The third horse, the black horse, we say that represented the economic oppression. So we see that not only would the Christians suffer violence, but they will also suffer economically. And then the fourth seal, it would even get so bad that many Christians would be murdered. The pale horse, the ashen horse, represents that how Christians were going to be murdered. They're going to die for the cause of the gospel because they won't bow down to the emperor as a god. And then in the fifth seal, we find those slain disciples, those disciples who have been murdered for their faith, they are crying under the altar. They want what? They want justice. They want God to avenge them. They say, how long, God, before you do something? God tells them to rest and wait a little longer because there are going to be many other saints who died during this time. And then we come to the sixth seal, and we said that that language that is found there in that part of, of the vision has to do with judgment. Judgment that was going to come from God. This essentially is the story of Revelation. This is the story of, of Revelation in a nutshell. Now, before we move on to chapter 7, 
Let's consider a few of the things about the sixth seal and the judgment that is found there in case that was a little confusing for you. Remember, we pointed out how the sixth seal represents God's judgment that was going to come upon the enemies of his people. These enemies were enemies of the first century. We believe they were the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is being used by the devil to try to destroy the church and persecute Christians. We also pointed out how the language that is found there in the sixth seal, those final verses of Revelation 6, is common apocalyptic judgment language that is found throughout the Bible. It's found in Isaiah. It's found in Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, Joel. That language is not intended to be literal. That language is not intended to be overanalyzed, overinterpreted, broken down in every single part, pinpointed to an exact moment in history. That's not the point of that kind of judgment, apocalyptic language. That language just simply represents judgment. It's just judgment. This day that is spoken of there, this day of judgment that God was going to bring about on the enemies of his people, it's not to be confused with the final day of judgment, okay? Remember, we studied about the final day of judgment a few weeks ago in one of the sermons. Remember, we pointed out how on that day, the final day, when the Lord comes back, the dead are going to be raised. There's no resurrection here with this sixth seal. The world is going to be destroyed. There's no world being destroyed here with the sixth seal. Only an empire will be destroyed. The judgment day will take place. In this sixth seal, there's only a judgment taking place against a particular group of people, the enemies of God's people in the first century. This is not all humanity like you're going to see on the final day. And then on the final day, all the wicked will be punished, not just the Roman Empire. All the wicked will be punished. The sixth seal has nothing to do, has nothing to do with the final day of judgment. The seal has to do with a judgment, a judgment, not the judgment, not the judgment day. Remember, the final day of judgment is going to come like a thief, isn't it? It's going to come like labor pains upon a woman with child. But this day in Revelation 6, it's going to come very what? Very quickly, very soon. That's the message of the book. It's coming soon. It's coming shortly. It's coming quickly. It's coming figuratively, not personally and literally like when the Lord comes back like a thief in the night. And so let's not confuse the two here. Again, all of this is the story of Revelation. This is the story of Revelation. And as we move on with the book, what the rest of the book is going to do is it's going to plug in the details from this. Okay, does that make sense? We have the summary in these seals. But through the rest of the book, the details are going to be plugged in. Okay, so you already know who's going to win the battle already with the breaking of the sixth seal. God brings judgment on the enemies of his people. We already know who wins right there. But God's going to go back now and just plug in some things. He's going to plug in some details as we move forward. We're going to look closer at the persecution of his people. We're going to look closer at the spiritual battle taking place behind the scenes. We're going to look closer at this judgment that God's going to execute on his enemies. Over the next few chapters, God is going to give us details concerning what happened with these in these six seals.
But before we dive into that, before God starts giving us these details, like watching a play, there's an interlude. There's an interlude in chapter 7, a break in the story. Before God goes through these seals and tells us what's, the details of what's going on here, there's a question that God answers first in chapter 7. And the question that is answered in chapter 7 is this question right here. It's the question of what happens, what happens to God's people? So we know God's going to bring judgment on the enemies. But what's going to happen to the Christians? What's going to happen not to the Christians and the Hadean world, but what's going to happen to the Christians on the earth? What's going to happen to the Christians on the earth as God executes this judgment? That is what chapter 7 is about. That's the question that is answered in chapter 7. And so look at Revelation 7, and let's just read... Let's just read the first eight verses. We're going to break this chapter up into two parts. Two parts. Okay? In Revelation 7 and verse 1, remember I read from the New American Standard Translation. It says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bond service of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest of all the tribes, the tribe that almost got exterminated in the time of the judges, 12,000, 12,000 were sealed. Okay, what's going on there in those verses? Well, let me just summarize what's going on here, and then we'll go back and talk about it. The bottom line of what's going on in those verses there is God is letting his people that he knows them and he cares about them. He knows them and he cares about them. He knows them and he's going to protect them. That's the point of those verses. So let's talk about this a little bit. Let's go back to verse number one. Let's go back to verse one. Okay, as the chapter opens up, we're introduced to some spiritual beings. What spiritual beings are we introduced in the first verse? Somebody say it louder, please. Some angels. How many angels? Four angels. Where are the four angels standing? Four corners of the earth. What do you think that represents? Four angels standing at four corners of the earth. What do you think that means? That's like the whole earth. Because what is the earth, as far as directions go, comprised of? North, south, east, west, right? So I think this represents God's spiritual beings over all the earth. Over all the earth. 
So you got four angels standing at the four corners. What do these angels do? Well, according to the text, they hold back the what? Just, just tell me what the text says right now. They hold back the what? The wind. So the wind is blowing real strong on the earth. Again, this is not literal here. This means something. The wind is blowing strong, but the angels hold it back. What does that mean? That means you've got to connect this back to the previous chapter. Remember, the sixth seal represented what? God's judgment. God's judgment coming upon the enemies. God's judgment coming upon the empire. So the judgment is going on, but these angels are going to hold back the judgment. It's been going on, but we're going to hold back now. We're going to pull it back. Why do they pull it back? According to the text. Well, they pull it back so that nothing else will be what? Harmed. They pull back the judgment of God. So that nothing else will be harmed, so that nothing else will be damaged. According to another angel that's mentioned in verse number two, God pulls his judgment back because he wants to do something before proceeding any further. What does he want to do before he proceeds? He wants to identify Marcus people. Isn't that what it says? The judgment is being is taking place on the enemies. But God says, hold on a second. The angel says, hold on, we're going to pull it back because God needs to do something first. He needs to mark his people. He needs to seal his people. Look again at verses 2 and 3 of the text. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. These four angels have authority from God to execute his judgment. And the ascending angel says, hold on, stop doing that. Verse three, do not harm the earth or the seal of the trees until we do something, until we seal the bond servants or the slaves of our God on their foreheads. God's got to, he got to mark his people. He's going to seal their foreheads. This is similar to what you find in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter nine. In the days of Israel, Ezekiel said that God did a similar thing. Ezekiel 9, write that down to read later. Ezekiel 9, verses 1 through 8, it's the same language. This is nothing new here. God marking his people before executing a full judgment on, on, on the enemies. The sealing or the marking of God's people, what do you think that represents? When God seals his people or marks his people, what do you think that represents symbolically? Yes, God protecting his people, God identifying his people, God knowing exactly who his people are and protecting them. That's right, Gary. God is protecting them in some way. I can't explain it all, but in some way he's protecting them from this pending judgment. Go ahead, Brother Don. You had a comment, sir. This, this, this reminds me of the parable that Jesus told of the tares of the field. Don't go in there ripping things up, but wait. That's good. Matthew 13, I believe, the, wheat, the parable of the wheat and the tares. You know, the, the, they wanted to go ahead and, and start reaping early, but God wanted to go ahead and grow together so they can be clearly identified, the good from the bad. And that's the same thing going on here. 
And, and this is something we learn throughout the Bible where God always knows in the great sea of humanity, and even today with 7 billion people in the world, God knows exactly who are his and who are not his. That's, the, that's true today with 7 billion people. Can you believe that? That God knows exactly who his people are. He knows exactly who his people are here in Phoenix. Out of the 5 million people or so who live here, God knows all who all his people are, where they're at. He knows this. And in some way in this case, in Revelation, with the sixth seal, God is going to protect them. He's going to protect them. He's going to watch over them while he executes judgment on those who oppress them. That's what's going on. Now, let's talk a little bit about this 144,000. You see that number that's mentioned there in the text? Have you ever heard a lot spoken of concerning that 144,000 number? Let's talk about that. The Jehovah's Witnesses are a religious group who make a big deal of that, don't they? Only problem is they get it backwards. They get it big time backwards. Okay, verse 4. The 144,000. Let me ask you first, and y'all you, you, are real smart people, and I mean that seriously. I'm not joking when I say that. What do y'all think that represents? Does anybody from any study, what do you think, just give me a simple statement. What do you think the 144,000 represent there? Brother Brian, you, you go ahead, sir. Completeness. Completeness. And we know that the number 12, right? That's a number that pops up throughout Revelation. And that number 12 typically or all, always represents completeness, fullness. And so every tribe that is mentioned there is numbered what? 12,000. I believe you're right, Ryan. And I believe that this 144,000, and y'all can do the math on that. I never was good math, so I'm not going to try, but you know the math. I think that just represents all of God's people, all of God's people on the earth. That's important. All of God's people on the earth. The Jehovah's Witnesses get this backwards. They say the 144,000 represent what? In heaven. They say it's heaven. This text says these people clearly are on the earth because remember the angels pulled back the judgment that was taking place where? On the earth. This is the earth. Brother Don, go ahead, sir. There's, a, there's another problem they've got. They keep telling us that Israel is going to be restored, but they fail to acknowledge the fact that Dan and Ephraim are not in. Don't do that, get Don. Don, you're getting ahead of me. <laughs> I knew you. I shouldn't have called on you. I knew you was going to do that. I knew you were. Yo, no, you're right. We're going to get there done. Because I want to say something. We need to say something about that. Because there are two tribes missing here. Um, so, so you got these tribes that are mentioned here. And that's interesting that the tribes, like you said, Don, it's the tribes of Israel that are mentioned. Brother James, go ahead, sir. Before I move further, you had a comment, sir. Brother James was saying anytime God numbers his people, it's always for a specific purpose, for battle, to go accomplish something that's, that relates to his will. That's, that is consistent through the Bible, and that's what's going on here. No, no you're right. Uh, and I think it goes back again to that white horse. Go remember the white horse. So let's talk about the tribes a little bit, because I think it's interesting that 
we have the Old Testament tribes that are mentioned here. I think, and I hope we can agree at least, that this is not meant to be taken literal, the literal tribes of Israel. In fact, if you take the late date of Revelation, like I do, like Mitch does, by the time you get to 95 AD, when this book was written, what happened to the temple by then? It's gone. And with the temple being gone, what else is gone for Israel? The, the records and their ability to have a priesthood and to do sacrifices. So they are wiped out as a nation if you take the late date, which, which, which I personally do. So I don't think that you can say these are the literal tribes. They are not God's people because they are physical descendants of Abraham by the time you get to the new covenant, are they? It doesn't matter if you are part of Abraham's physical lineage. When, it, when, you, when you get to the new covenant, instead, instead of being physical Israel, God identifies his people in the new covenant as spiritual Israel. Spiritual Israel. Go to Galatians. Galatians chapter 6, please. Galatians chapter 6. And this was true very early. I mean, Galatians is, is generally believed to be one of the first letters written uh, in the canon. And in Galatians 6, almost Paul wrote to these, and these were mainly Gentile Christians here. In Galatians 6 and verse 15, Paul says, for neither is circumcision. Remember, circumcision was a big deal under the old covenant. That was one of the ways God marked his people was through circumcision. That was in place before the Ten Commandments was circumcision. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a what? A new creation. And those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy upon them and upon the what? The Israel of God. Paul is saying that these Christians were the Israel of God. He's not talking about the Israel of the old, co of the old covenant. There he's talking about spiritual Israel. The real Israel, the old covenant Israel, was only a shadow of what, were, what would be revealed later in the new covenant, which would mean that, that would be us. We're the real Israel, the Israel of God, the spiritual Israel. And so I believe that these tribes that are mentioned in Revelation 6 symbolically represent Christians on the earth, spiritual Israel on the earth. I think that's what John is, is doing there. Chosen, that's right. Called and chosen. That's right, Gary. And so let's talk about what Don brought up. Because in that list there is something interesting. You got 12 names mentioned in that list that allude back to the Old Covenant. But there are two tribes missing there. Which two tribes are missing there? Manasseh's not used. Ephraim is missing. There's one more. Ephraim is. Dan. So Manasseh's there and Joseph is there. You never find that it's spoken that way in the Old Testament where you got Manasseh and Joseph. It's always Manasseh and Ephraim. It's never because Joseph got a double portion, remember, because Reuben messed up. So Joseph got the double portion of the inheritance and his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, would have their own tribes. But Ephraim's not mentioned here and Dan is not mentioned here. And I believe there's a reason for that intentionally. When you study the Old Testament carefully, in the time of Jeroboam, remember King Jeroboam? 
think that's about 1 Kings 12, 13. Remember when the kingdom of Israel divides and Rehoboam takes two of the tribes and forms the southern kingdom of Judah and Jeroboam takes 10 of the tribes and he forms the northern kingdom of Israel. Well, remember Jeroboam was paranoid and just freaked out if, uh, by allowing the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem to worship at the temple because even though Rehoboam only had two tribes, where was the temple? It was in the southern kingdom. So that meant the 10 tribes would have to go to Jerusalem to worship properly. Well, Jeroboam didn't want to risk that. He didn't trust God. And so what Jeroboam does is he sets up a false system of worship. He sets up an idolatrous system of worship, the golden calf system, in two places. Dan and Bethel, which is also synonymous in the Old Testament when it comes to geography with Ephraim. So through Dan and Bethel or Ephraim, Jeroboam led the children of Israel, 10 of the tribes, into idolatry. And that idolatry would be the reason why they would go into Assyrian captivity. It is interesting how those two tribes are left out. They're left out. And that is a reason why. There's a reason why. This list in Revelation 6 with these tribes that are mentioned there is supposed to represent the faithful not the unfaithful. It is supposed to represent those who are worshiping God as the one true God, not those who get involved in idolatry. And so it's only natural that Dan and Ephraim will be left off of a list like this when throughout the Old Testament, they are, they are attributed to being the tribes that Jeroboam used to lead Israel into idolatry. Because remember, Jeroboam's idolatry would follow Israel all the way to they were no more. Remember, every king that pops up, it says he followed in the ways of who? Jeroboam. And so I think that's why they left, they're left off. Don, if, if I'm wrong on that, go ahead and correct me. But Did you want to say something else on that? That's, that was what I, I saw. That, and I'm like you, I thought that was really interesting. Did anybody else have a comment about that? Did anybody else study something on that? Go ahead, Brother Mitch. Right. That's exactly right. No. No, that, that's exactly right. That would be a clear contradiction. Uh, that, that is an interesting point there because in the first half, there's a, an exact number, and then the next one says you, you, you can't number it. They both are true. And I think the 144,000 there, when you put it with the symbolic use of the tribes, just simply represents all of God's people, all of God's people on the earth who had not given in to emperor worship. Uh, so that's a good point, Mitch. Excellent point. And so let's say a couple other things about this. Let's say a couple other things about this, okay? The ceiling of the 144,000. I want to ask this last question before we close. What would the ceiling, the marking of the 144,000, this number that represents all of God's people on the earth, what would that tell the Christians during this time? The Christians who are being oppressed, the Christians who are losing their jobs, they're losing their homes, some of them being thrown in prison, 
mocked, ridiculed, some are even dying, being murdered. What, what, what would it tell them? Go ahead, Lance. What, what it makes me think of is the uh, seals meant a lot more to them than they do to us today. Because of the kings and, but, yes, but yes. I can't help but think of the COVID passport that allows you to get on airplanes. Oh, you got a seal. Yeah, I mean, you have something that yes. identifies you, that gives you privilege, yes. gives you access and other things. And I just couldn't help but think of that whenever I was reading. No, that's a good illustration because I think that's exactly what the point is. That's what sealing is all about. Uh, that's what it was about even in, in the first century times. It was a marking. You know, whenever a king would send off a letter or something, he would put his signature, what, on, on the letter? His, his, yeah, his, his seal. He would put his, his special seal on it. Uh, and so that's the same idea there. Brother Doug, go ahead, sir, and then you had a comment, Dakota. Yes. Excellent point. Dakota, go right ahead, ma'am. Yes. I was hoping nobody made that point, Dakota, because that's a sermon right there. <laughs> that's a tough one. But no, you're, you're right. It's the same idea. We're sealed today. It's the same idea. So let me just add a, a couple of things on, on the wonderful thoughts y'all gave. I believe the ceiling of the 144,000 would tell these Christians during this time that God knew where they were. That God knew who they were. And God was going to protect them. All, through all the bad stuff about to happen and some bad stuff is about to happen that's going to come from God. And the enemies are going to know it's coming from God. God says, well, I do a lot of bad stuff coming up to these enemies. You're going to be okay. I'm going to protect you in some way. I can't explain how God exactly does it. I just know he does it. And do you believe that God could do that today still? You think God could still protect us, even if he brings about judgment on enemies? I believe we serve the same God today that they served. These things are still true. Today, today, God still knows who his people are, where they are, and he is still in the business of protecting them. In fact, and I'm not trying to say COVID came from God. That's not the point. But I do want to make this point that even during that, when God allowed that to happen, did he protect us? We're here. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that exactly one year after we had to shut this thing down for a month, we'll be back at 200 on the exact a, a, a day, that same Sunday, the same Sunday when we shut it down, we'll be right back where we were again a year later. Don't tell me God not, not good. Don't tell me God's still not in the business of watching over his people when he knows they're really trying to do his will. God can get us through anything. And, and he did it here. He said he was going to do it. He's doing it today. We just got to open up our eyes. We got to see it. We got to acknowledge it. Brother Greg, your head, sir, and then we'll close. Anywhere, no matter what the 
Brother Greg, and I just want to close with this. You're so right because God already told these people that more people are going to die. He said that in the sixth seal, I mean the fifth seal. And so this is not a guarantee here that you're going to just be okay on the earth. You have rosy and sunshine days. No, that's not the promise. The promise is I'm going to take care of you. And so often our thinking is limited to physical. But that's not the ultimate deliverance God gives. The ultimate deliverance is the spiritual one. So even though some of these people are going to die, God still wanted to know, I'm with you, I'm going to take care of you. And that is something we got to be mindful of because that's the most important thing. Good comment. Let's stop right there. Good comments, everybody.